This morning we're going to consider Jesus gave up the ghost. When you look at your Bible, what you ought to be able to see is that Christians do not have some pie-in-the-sky faith. Rather, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is founded upon historical facts that have been sealed up in the Scriptures and that have reached ears that God has graciously unstopped and reached hearts that God has opened to receive his truth. I'm talking about facts such as God sending his only begotten son (coughs) into the world and his son being made flesh. Facts such as the incarnate son of God submitting himself to God's law and fulfilling it on behalf of all the miserable lawbreakers that his father has given him. People like you and like me. And, as we shall see today, the Bible records historical facts, such as the death on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ when he sacrificially laid down his life as an atonement for sin. Let's have a look at John chapter 19 and verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Having completed the work of redemption that his father had sent him into the world to do, the sacrificial lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, declared, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. We've already seen back in chapter 18 and verse 6 a few weeks ago how all the Roman soldiers and their captain and the temple police, it would have numbered many people, without a doubt. All of those men, they went backwards and they fell to the ground when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That was not normal. If you can imagine that for one moment in your head, all those soldiers, their captain and so on, all falling back, falling to the ground when they came to arrest Jesus. It really wasn't normal. It was a clear demonstration that Jesus was in control and not them. Likewise, we need not imagine that when the man Christ Jesus died on the cross, that he had lost control of the situation. He hadn't, not even for one moment. Note in verse 30 there, that Jesus bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. His spirit was not taken from him. Verse 30 tells us that he gave up his spirit. It's important to appreciate that, that Jesus gave up his spirit having bowed his head. As such, even though Jesus was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, he was nevertheless in full control of the event. And what was said by him in chapter 10 of John's Gospel, verses 17 and 18, was being fulfilled. Let me read to you John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, concerning Jesus 
bowing his head and giving up the ghost. Therefore doth my Father love me because I laid down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Very clear, isn't it, in John chapter 10 that Jesus laid down his life at the cross. It's worth looking at Mark's account of what happened. I'm going to read Mark chapter 15, verse 37 to 39. If you want to follow along, just keep your finger in John chapter 19. Mark 15, verse 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Truly this man was the son of God. That's the testimony of the centurion who was right there at the time. He saw Jesus give up the ghost. Truly this man was the son of of God. Others had declared Jesus to be the son of God but it was said in unbelief and it was said in mockery, wasn't it? However, with the centurion there is no hint of mockery at all. What the centurion said was not actually theologically sound. That he was the son of God. Have you ever thought about that, Christians, when you've seen that statement? Was the son of God? He is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. He always has been the son of God. He always will be the son of God. But it needs to be appreciated that those words came from the mouth of a pagan who would have had a pagan's understanding of God. That centurion had probably supervised many crucifixions. Crucifying people would have been in a day's work for him. But surely this would have been the only time that that centurion declared, truly this man was the son of God. Let's turn back to John chapter 19 and read verse 31. The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. What can be seen in verse 31 is an example of the depravity of men's hearts. This verse tells us that it was the preparation. In other words, it was the day before the weekly Sabbath day, that one day in seven where uh, there was a, a, a rest day. 
the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath day is rest is modelled on God creating the heaven and the earth in six days and resting from his creative work on the seventh day. Let me just read to you what Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 to 11 say about the Sabbath day. This is the fourth commandment of God. The fourth of ten commandments. In Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 through to 11. It is written, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. That's how we, that's where we get it from, the the, the one day a week of rest, it's modelled on God, creating heaven and earth in six days, resting from his creative work on the seventh day. Additionally, if you look at the Ten Commandments, as they are recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you will see in verse 15 that the Sabbath day rest was also a time to remember God's deliverance by a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm, a deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. So we get a bit more information there in Deuteronomy chapter 5 concerning the fourth commandment. Not only was the Sabbath day fast approaching during which the Jews were to remember what God's creation of the heaven and the earth and also they were to remember the deliverance of their descendants from Egypt, it was also the Passover week. Not just the Sabbath day approaching, but the Passover week was there. That time of the year which was specifically set apart for the Jews to remember their deliverance by God from slavery in Egypt. One of the facts of the Bible is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. As such, what the Jews ought to have been preparing for with the Sabbath day fast approaching and with the Passover week was a time of remembering when the Son of God, who they nailed to the cross, brought everything into existence in six days. As it is written in John chapter 1 and verse 3 concerning the Son, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And they should have been preparing for a time of remembering when the Son of God delivered their ancestors out of slavery with an outstretched arm. Instead of that, their creator and their deliverer was nailed to a wooden cross with both of his arms stretched out, nailed to that cross and the big priority of those Jews at the time was not defiling the Sabbath day. They did not want to defile the Sabbath. They didn't want to desecrate the Sabbath day by having three bodies, including Jesus, hanging on crosses. They wanted them removed sooner the better. The solution was simple, as can be seen in verse 31. 
the Jews besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Just get rid of the problem. We've got the Sabbath coming. Let's have a look at verses 32 through to 34. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith there came there out blood and water. The brutal act of breaking a crucified person's legs served to speed up the process of dying. Didn't kill them straight away, but it speeded things up so that the dead bodies could then be removed and disposed of before the start of the Sabbath day. Otherwise, those bodies might remain on the cross, on the crosses, for quite literally days. It sometimes took days for people to die when they were crucified. It was only when the soldiers came to Jesus to break his legs, having already done so to the two thieves, that they saw that he was already dead, and so they broke not his legs, we're told in the, in the text. The very fact that the soldiers came to Jesus for the purpose of breaking his legs implies that Pilate had authorised the breaking of the legs of Jesus as well as the two thieves. However, with Jesus already dead, his legs were not broken. My guess is that the soldiers had crucified enough people to know if someone was dead or still alive. They weren't doctors, but they'd probably seen it many, many times over and they could see that Jesus was already dead. We know that they were right because we've been told in verse 30 that Jesus gave up the ghost. Even so, as it is written in verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. There was no need for that, was there? They could see he was dead, but still one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and forthwith came blood and water. It happened and it's been recorded for us in God's book, the Bible. Verse 34 ought to silence all who have chosen to dismiss verses such as uh, John chapter 1 and verse 14 in which it is written, and the word was made flesh. There are people who will insist that Jesus was some kind of a phantom, that he wasn't truly a man. Despite clear evidence in the Bible that Jesus was truly man. And we, re- we can see that in verse 34. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith it came there out blood and water as one might expect would happen, because what? Because he was a man. And 
Verse 34 ought to silence all who claim that Jesus did not really die. There are people who will insist, well, yes, Jesus was crucified, but he didn't die. They don't want to accept that Jesus died on the cross. Verse 34 ought to silence those peoples as well. The blood, the water coming from the side of the Lord Jesus Christ, from his heart. He died. And if Jesus hadn't died at the cross, it would have been the greatest um, bit of theatrical in the whole of history and the biggest deception of all time if Jesus hadn't really died. But he did die. He gave up the ghost. We can see God's overruling hand with regards to Jesus not having his legs broken as it's written in verse 36. For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. A bone of him shall not be broken because Jesus was already dead. The soldiers therefore did not break his legs Going back, let me explain this to you, going back about 1500 years to when God delivered the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. That occasion that the Jews were supposed to be preparing themselves to remember with the Sabbath day and with the Passover week. Well anyway, going back 1500 years... God instructed the Israelites to kill the lamb that each house had been instructed to keep for the past four days and they were further instructed to spread its blood on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes. And that same night the Lord passed over, he passed over the land of Egypt and he struck all the firstborn in the land except for the firstborn in the houses that were daubed with blood. The Lord passed over those houses, hence the name Passover. From then on, each year on the Sabbath day and during the Passover week, the Jews remembered their deliverance on the Sabbath day. During the time when Jesus was crucified, it was the Passover week. Each household was take, to, to take a lamb without blemish. This was happening every year with the Jews. Uh, including the time when Jesus, time of the year when Jesus was crucified. Each household was to take a lamb without blemish. It was not to be treated in a, as an ordinary animal that was slaughtered for ordinary food and cut up and portioned out. No bones were to be broken with the Passover lamb. No part of it was to be carried from one house to another, nor was any portion that might be left over to be eaten like any other meat. It was to be burnt before morning. All those instructions, and in particular the one about not breaking the bones of the Passover lamb, lifted the Passover lamb above all other sacrifices. And as can be seen in verse 36, the Passover lamb pointed to a fulfilment in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Passover lamb whose shed blood spares his redeemed 
from the judgment that is due to the world, of which Egypt is a type, Jesus brings deliverance from eternal destruction. And so it was that scripture was being fulfilled on the centre cross, with Jesus not having his legs broken. He was the Passover lamb, the one who brings deliverance to all who are trusting in him. There was another prophecy that was fulfilled, as can be seen in verse 37. Look at verse 37. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John was quoting from the second to last book in the Old Testament, the prophecy of Zechariah. They, when you look at that verse, uh, verse 37, they shall look on him whom they pierce. They refers to the Jews. Not all of them, but those who would by the grace of God repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ from the time of his death right up to when he shall come again in judgment at the end of the world. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. Not literally, but with broken and contrite hearts. They shall look upon their Messiah, the one they pierced, as they receive grace from God and mercy and they are saved from their sins. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, which Jesus was fulfilling there, it is written, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look on me whom they pierced. This is God speaking, by the way. They shall look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Looking at Luke's account of events, after the Lord Jesus Christ gave up the ghost, it is written in chapter 23 of Luke's Gospel, verse 48, that all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts. What a sight that would have been, all those people there at the cross smiting their chests. I'm not suggesting for one moment that the multitude who were there all became Christians at the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't imagine for one moment that that happened, but there was nevertheless something happening with those guilty hearts. A godly sorrow amongst the Jews that works repentance unto salvation most certainly could be seen to have happened just seven weeks after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. We see a partial fulfilment of what Zechariah said, or prophecy being fulfilled there, with uh, looking upon him whom they pierced that mourning, that contrition. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter preached to a big crowd of Jews and he said to them concerning Jesus, him, (coughs) 
him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. The consequences were that they were cut to the heart. Again, not all of them, but they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that day 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls, one might say, looked upon him whom they pierced and they were saved by the grace of God. Finally, what we've been reading and considering this morning is not fiction. You need to remember that. It's not fiction, it's reality. It really happened. The Apostle John, who recorded these details, was right there and he witnessed it. Look at verse 35. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. These details are recorded that you might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. About 2,000 years ago, the Creator came down from his glory and he was manifest in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, where he gave up the ghost, having had the iniquities of all whom his Father had given him laid upon him. These are facts that are presented to us in the Bible. The sins of repentant Jews and Gentiles were laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't dismiss what happened as fiction or of no relevance to you, but rather believe that you might have everlasting life in his name. Amen.